wish I found some better sounds no one's ever heard. I wish I had a better voice to sing some better words. I wish I had a in order that is new. I wish I didn't have to rhyme every time I sang. I was told when I get older all my friends would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. My name's Blurry Face and I care what you think. My name's Blurry Face and I care what you think. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days. When our mama sang us to sleep, but now was stressed out. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days. When our mama sang us to sleep, but now was stressed out. Was stressed out. Sometimes a certain smell would take me back to when I was young. How come I'm never able to identify where it's coming from? I'd make a candle out of it if I ever found it. Try to sell it, never sell out of it. I'd probably only sell one if you tell my brother. Cause we had the same nose, same clothes, homegrowns, a stone's throw from Quaker used to roam. But it wouldn't remind us of when nothing really mattered. Out of student loans, a treehouse homes, we all would take the ladder. My name's Blurry Face and I care what you think. My name's Blurry Face and I care what you think Wish we could turn back time To the good old days When our mama sang us to sleep But now we're stressed out Wish we could turn back time To the good old days When our mama sang us to sleep But now we're stressed out we used to play pretend, give each other different names We would build a rocket ship and then we fly far away Used to dream of outer space, but now they're laughing at our face Saying, wake up, you need to make money, yo We used, used to, to play pretend, give each other different names We would build a rocket ship and then we fly far away Used to dream of outer space, but now they're laughing at our face Saying, wake up, you need to make money, yo Wish we could turn back time To the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days. When our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. We used to play pretend, used to play pretend, bunny. We used to play pretend, wake up, you need the money. We used to play pretend, used to play pretend, bunny. Used to play pretend, wake up, you need the money. Used to play pretend, give each other different names. We would build a rocket ship and then we fly far away. Used to dream of outer space, but now they're laughing at our face, saying, Wake up, you need to make money. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. We're going to dismiss our children now to their learning centers. So children ages kindergarten through fifth grade, we've got classes for you and teachers waiting for you right now in the Education Center. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to have the kids uh, listen to that song. That's my, that, I got two girls, seven and eight, in my home, and that's one of their favorites. That's definitely on their playlist. I don't know if that's on your playlist. 
but it has sort of become not just for littles, but uh, for millennials, uh, that age group between 16 and 35, kind of a theme song, really, for millennial angst. And if you listen to the words, it's about debt, about the faltering career prospects, about uh, the duties of growing up and the wistful longing to return to childhood. It's a song about the stresses of adulting, right? Which is a new word that we made up, a verb that we made up out of a noun. It used to be just adults was the noun. Now it's adulting is a thing you do, which brings to mind all the adulting memes on the internet these days, right? I mean, you've broken the internet with memes like this one. I don't want to adult today, therefore I shall cat. (laughs) Yeah, so listen, now before you get all judgy with people who just want to cat or, uh, or, or not grow up, uh, look, this, this song is for more than just the young adults that can relate to it. And if you find yourself in that judgment mode a little bit, listen, if this generation is objectively uh, struggling a little bit more with launching and with moving into adulthood, more a little bit objectively, again, as measured by some whatever metrics you want to use, uh, more than generations past, there's a reason for that. And the reason is because they've been raised differently than generations past. And whose responsibility was it to raise millennials? You know, ours, busters, boomers, you know, if you're over 35 in this room, it was yours. The people who were judging them, mostly, it was your, your, your job. Listen, no millennial asked to be called a snowflake. No millennial asked to be given a participation trophy or a mobile device at the age of seven. Well, maybe they asked, but they, you didn't have to give it to them. And uh, no one asked to have their career prospects and future government solvency literally compromised by the financial misadventures of my generation's addiction to debt and overconsumption. They didn't ask for that. They didn't ask for the stress, but that's what they got. So no matter how we got here, I, we just clearly need God's Word to speak a word over an entire generation that is feeling stressed out. And as it turns out, there's an entire book of the Bible that was written in answer to the themes of this song, and it is the book of Proverbs. There it is nestled in the middle of your Bible in the Old Testament. And as you read it, you'll notice there's a figure that keeps showing up metaphorically throughout the book of Proverbs. So what you should do is you should, as you read the book, by the way, there's 31 chapters, you could read a chapter a day and start a Bible reading habit, and this would just infuse something amazing into your life. You read the book of Proverbs, if you did that, you'd notice this metaphorical figure showing up all the time. The Proverbs are like sort of um, personified as a woman. And not just any woman, but a really, really smart woman. And she's smart about everything. She's like a really awesome life coach. She's smart about work, relationships, sex, money, money money-making, career issues, which is a big theme in the song, and spirituality. What makes her so smart? Well, Lady Proverbs believes that there is an invisible creative force in the universe that can guide people in how to live and how to find, let me say it, a good life. Not a perfect life, not a pain-free life, but how to find a good life. That's the answer of the book of Proverbs. And so Lady Proverbs believes that the universe has been inbuilt with a set of moral laws Just in the same way that we've already discovered, haven't we, that the the universe has been built upon physical laws, like these physical properties that are these inherent sort of mathematical ways of explaining the way matter works, the book of Proverbs believes that the same thing applies to the moral economy of the universe, that there's a set of principles, a set of laws that governs it, and if you find out about it, 
well, then it'll get your life working towards a good life. The laws are invisible, just like the law of gravity, but it affects everything. Money, play, sex, career, marriage, relationships. And like gravity, if you figure out how it works, you get it working for you, it can be amazing, like turning gravity into the thrill of skydiving or skiing. Conversely, if you never figure it out, then the invisible force turns from a creative force in your life to a destructive force in your life. In the same way that gravity starts working against you, it's not good. It's when you fall, when you crash your car. So what is the force we're talking about? What, what is the, the thing that lady, uh, the lady, lady Proverbs is calling out to you about? It's a thing in the Hebrew called Chokmah, usually translated into the English as wisdom. Wisdom is the secret force, that set of moral principles God has embedded into the very nature of things. Find yourself working against it, and now you've got the opposite thing, foolishness, kasiluth in the Hebrew, and you'll be stressed out and much, much worse. So the first time you come across Lady Wisdom, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32, wisdom, she says, simpletons, turn away from me to death. In other words, you ignore me, that's where you're headed. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency, but all who listen to me will be, now get this, friends, free from the fear of danger. Wisdom equals freedom from fear. There's a kind of liberty that comes from finding and imbibing wisdom. Now compare this to the words of the song we just heard, 21 Pilots. I was told that when I got older, all my fears would shrink but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. See, here's a person who's really beset by fears, aren't they? Beset by fears and especially the anxiety of growing older. Fear is crushing their future. And so the entire song is really not looking forward, is it? The entire song is looking backwards, right? The entire song is looking backwards. He's looking backwards in time when, quote, nothing mattered. He'd like to turn back time. He'd like to invent a memory candle. I love that. This, this is a beautiful metaphor where one sniff of it would take you back to childhood. He'd probably only sell one, probably to his brother. But then it would, it would take him back to a time when mommy would sing him to sleep. The enti- it, it's just a repeated refrain of the song to go backwards, backwards, backwards to the relative safety of childhood. Well, now everyone pines for simpler days. That's not new to this generation. But what causes an entire generation to be stressed out? What causes an entire generation to lose hope in the future, to not want to grow up? They're saying that, and this was true in my home, we're now having to force children to get their driver's license. Uh, I don't know about you, but I remember, I think I scheduled my driver's exam for the second that I turned 16. And now these days, I don't don't know, what. I don't want a driver's license. I just be responsible for a 2,000-pound hunk of steel and glass, probably kill someone. Besides, you'll just drive me everywhere, won't you? I mean, a lot of this stuff is just entirely different to, to want to retreat back to childhood. And I submit that part of the reason here is that we've told an entire generation from the time that they were born that there is no such thing as wisdom, that there is no secret thread, that there is no objective set of moral principles like the principles we found out that govern the physical universe that you could discover and by which you could make a good life. Your life could be good and not defined by stressed out. So from birth we've told 
our children, this generation and the one that's following them, for example, in science, just teach them from the day that they're born that all of biology, every bit of life that you see, it appears designed. Oh, yes, the impression of design in nature is overwhelming, but don't believe your lying eyes. It's not the way it is. It's actually just randomness. It's chaos, and there is no plan whatsoever. There's no intelligence. There's no design. Tell them that history is the story of the oppressor ruling over the oppressed. The strong shall eat and the weak are meat. Just tell them that. These are the reigning ways to think about everything today. That's the reigning way to think about biology, to sociology, to the economy. So when you hit adulthood with that beautiful gift, uh, you launch your boat onto a chaotic sea with no radar, no GPS, no charts, no sextant, no compass. So the waves of pressure seem like they're going to overturn your little dinghy. And then now where are you going to turn? Well, you know, you got a few handholds. You got to eat. So you get a successful career, I guess. Ah, but all the jobs are taken and, you know, falling wages and that whole thing. But in the, the refrain from the song, wake up, dude, you need to make money. Ah, but wealth pursuits seem to make my parents miserable. Okay, so reject career climbing. Great, so now what's left? If you don't make any money, couch hopping, no car, no driver's license, no spouse, no direction, no positive impact on the world. And now you're even more stressed out. Is this better? I don't think so. So the waves are high. Everything is hard. And for a paddle, we give you this. Just make up your own purpose. There is no wisdom to find. Whatever you decide, that will be wisdom for you. Whatever you decide. And you'd think that would be great, wouldn't you? I mean, this would be, you'd think just intuitively, you'd say, you know, a customizable purpose for everybody. Yeah, we'd all just be swinging, uh, swimming in, um, in the grandeur of just getting to make it up. But no one's swimming in grandeur. We're stressed out. We're stressed out without the compass. We're stressed out without the belief that there is wisdom, chokmah. There is an actual invisible thread of moral principle by which you could guide your life and it could become straight. So we need that. I mean, it just seems like we need it. I mean, I'm just judging now by the statistics, friends. I mean, you'd think, hey, look, everybody makes it all up as they go along, but we're stressed out. A recent survey in England says, uh, one in four women between 16 and 24 have harmed themselves. So let me say it again, just so we get a sense of the size of the numbers. One in four, 25% of women between the ages of 16 and 24 have harmed themselves. And one in eight now suffer from PTSD. One in eight. Anxiety, depression, phobias, or obsessive compulsive disorders now affect 26% of women in this age group, and the numbers with men aren't much better. Friend, this is, a, this is a, a health crisis, and if it was broken bones and not mental health disorders, we would be calling Congress. We'd be like, what, what are we doing? The, the society is growing broken. We're stressed out, and you'd think, man, it would be great. You'd think everybody just making it up as they go along would be awesome. It's not awesome. It's not, as judged simply by the numbers. We're living lives stressed out. There's a deep desire to retreat to the relative safety of childhood, delaying adulthood. And all this, friends, is not the result of bad people. I submit to you it is the result of bad ideas. 
It is the result of deeply bad ideas. So the rescue begins when we can change our ideas about the world. Replace the idea that you are just adrift with nothing but your own ideas or feelings or understanding to lean on or rely on. Instead, do what Lady Proverbs calls you to do. And here's a couple of verses that a lot of you in this room have committed to memory. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord. Earlier she says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So now let us trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Chokmah. God's wisdom is calling out in the streets to everyone saying, there is a good life in wisdom. And it will help you launch into adulthood with less stress. Pain-free? Absolutely not. But with less stress. There will be guidance of principles, a means of seeking virtue and patience and frugality and self-control and faithfulness and truth-telling. And just read it. Chapters 1 through 31, just read it. And there will be a nugget in there. You go, wow, I haven't ordered my life according to that wise principle. Why not? That's like a golden thread. That's like a secret little nugget. And if I did that, well, things might go better for me and I might experience less stress. The whole theme of Proverbs is saying, relax, there's an owner, and therefore there's an owner's manual. Relax, you can trust him. Relax, you don't have to make it up as you go along. But this is something that maybe some of us really don't want to do, because seeking wisdom means seeking virtue. And that means coming to grips with your own lack of virtue. It means coming to grips with your own tendency towards foolishness, kasiluth, and your own tendency towards brokenness. And, and who wants to do that? So we'd rather maybe say that all the stress is the sole result of the larger forces that are acting on us, right? It's society's fault. So the solution isn't wisdom. Oh, that's too slow. Really? Seriously? Seeking wisdom? The secret moral thread, Rick, whatever you're talking about? No, I mean, that's just going to take, take a lifetime to get wise. You need something much quicker. The solution is is revolution. And so the next song is a classic from The Who from 1971. And this song basically asks the question, maybe our hope lies in revolution. Thank you. 
called the greatest scream in rock history. And now we have the second greatest scream in rock history. You know, the, the band's always excellent, right? But sometimes they put a little extra mustard on it. And I feel like that was one of those times that it might have something to do with the gray hairs I'm seeing over in that part of the stage. This is your song, guys. It's your song. I wasn't born then yet. I was four years old. So just saying. All right, so it's a little bit of love we have going on here. So Pete Townsend wrote this song about revolution. And did you follow the lyrics here? You got in the first verse, there's an uprising. In the middle verse, they overthrow those in power. But in the end, the new regime looks just like the old one, and it ends with the classic last line, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The 20th century is a good time for such a song to come about because it was, a, it was a century filled with utopian dreams. And Pete Townsend really felt like utopian thinking was pointless because whoever takes over is destined, he said, to become corrupt. He was interviewed about this song and he said, yeah, the song is anti-establishment, but revolution is not going to change anything in the long run and people are going to get hurt. We're starting a small group here pretty soon. Maybe you'd pay attention and some of you might, you know, get to know some people. It's a short term, like a seven-week small group, studying cultural ideas that have effect on Christian thinking. And one of the ideas that the small group will, will explore is the ideas that came from Karl Marx, Marxism. And this is a philosophy that actually is becoming resurgent in our time through socialistic thinkers in our day. And as I think about the increased popularity of Marx in our time, it it baffles, me, it baffles me just a little bit because I think it seems as though we've, we've all developed a collective 100-year gap in our collective memory, and that would be the years between 1883 and 1989. During those years, there would be no less than 29 communist revolutions or civil wars, and among the successful ones you've heard about, the one in Russia, the one in China, the one in Cuba, the one in Vietnam, the one in Korea, and the one in Cambodia. And here's a fact. Whatever you may think about the conditions in those countries before Marx's ideas were implemented, or how many people you think might have died because of oppressive economic systems or conditions, no one now denies that it doesn't even compare to the death that came after. And here are the numbers. The grim numbers are in. At least 65 million people killed in the People's Republic of China, 20 million killed in the Soviet Union, 2 million killed by the state in Cambodia, 2 million killed in North Korea, 1.7 million killed in Ethiopia, 1.5 million killed in Afghanistan. Did you know that there was a communist revolution in Afghanistan? There was. 1 million killed in the Eastern Bloc, 1 million killed in Vietnam, 150,000 killed in socialist revolutions 
in Latin America. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Pete Townsend's line actually brings to mind almost immediately the classic uh, story uh, from George Orwell, the classic novel called Animal Farm. A lot of you had to read this in high school or in your literature class. And it's a deliberate allegory of the Russian Revolution, right? And in the story, the allegory, the pigs uh, stir up a revolution on the farm. So the pigs call up the animals to revolt against the farmer. Why? Because Farmer Jones, who represents the industrialists and the capitalists, was taking all the eggs and all the milk and using the resources of the farm for himself. So, spoiler alert, at the end of the story, the pigs have now moved into Farmer Jones's farmhouse. And they use the produce of the farm now for themselves. The pigs do, for their own advantage. And their high-sounding revolutionary rhetoric of equality and justice suddenly begins to change. The, the, the revolution begins in the high-sounding motto, all animals are equal. And that's what got the farm revolution going. Farm-volution, what do you call it? Animal-lution, whatever. And suddenly that got changed, and now the motto was, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. The pigs, it turns out, are becoming more and more human. They begin to sleep in Farmer Jones's bed, they dress in Farmer Jones's clothes, and they start to walk on two legs. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You know, here's a question, why? Why does it turn out like that? That, that isn't just true in the Russian Revolution, that's true throughout hu human history, it seems like. Revolutions are followed almost always by similar conditions. So what, what is going on there? Why is that the truth? I think I might have an answer. I studied Karl Marx this week, and Marx believed that to change the world, you needed to change the man. You needed to change human beings. But a man, to Marx, was not what we classically would define a man as a spirit-soul unity, a duality of moral sense and physical impulses and material. No, to Marx, a man was just a, 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 a bunch of atoms, a, a, an interesting uh, collection of impulses and uh, chemistry in the brain. That's really what a man was. And Marx inspired a Russian uh, physiologist that you've heard of, a guy named Ivan Pavlov. What is Ivan Pavlov famous for? The dog thing, right? So he could get dogs to salivate on cue by tinkling a bell, and he just realized that, that animals are just like this. They're like just complex machines, and you can, you can, you can change a machine. You can rearrange a machine. And with this kind of strict materialistic view of the human animal... Pavlov and Marx and all of Marx's disciples uh, started to believe that a, a human being was really just a complex bunch of nerve endings. And like a dog with passions and appetites and glandular functions, he could be trained. He could be trained by the principles and, uh, and habits of science to be bent. Now you say, interesting, bent towards what, right? Bent towards becoming what Marx would call the new man. Well, AC3, whenever you hear this, this idea of bending humanity towards some new evolutionary stage or something, some new man, and lots of people are thinking about this. It's really the underlying premise behind X-Men, by the way, this idea that we're, we're on the verge of becoming a new man. Whenever you hear this, two questions should pop into your mind. Number one, what should we change a man into? And number two, who gets to do the changing? Those are two questions that should immediately pop into your mind. The answers are actually given by Marx's disciples over the course of the last hundred years. And here are the answers. Number one, a man is to be changed into a creature perfectly engineered so that he is without needs, therefore without wants, therefore without ambition. 
He's perfectly content, therefore perfectly controllable, perfectly adapted. Well, now, who can do this? Who can make such a docile little poodle out of raging human beings? Who, who gets to do that? Who gets to change to make the new man? Well, you can see what's required. What's required is an all-powerful state. To engineer the new man's body through eugenics, you must re-engineer the new man's genes by prenatal conditioning. To re-engineer the new man's thoughts by education and by propaganda. You must re-engineer the new man's values by psychology. And all these things were thought by key and leading communist thinkers throughout the world. And when you hear that, friends, then maybe that begins to explain something. Maybe that begins to explain why Marx's ideas have never been implemented without totalitarianism. Never. Never. Despite being tried across racial groups, across continents, and across seven different decades. I mean, it's not like we just had a one-off. It's not like we just tried it once. We tried it over 30 different times across seven different decades in five different continents, and it, it never happened without totalitarianism just tagging along for the, for the party. You thought Nicholas II, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, was a bad dude? Wait till you get a hold of Stalin. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. What's going on? Why can't revolution bring in the new man? We all want it. Everybody's got this utopist uh, uh, impulse inside of them. Why not? I think we get a hint of an answer from another Russian. A guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian, first of all, a military, uh, he was a soldier and an officer in the Russian military during World War II, later a journalist and writer. And he spent 11 years in a Russian gulag for criticizing Stalin during World War II. Uh, and uh, he was a committed Marxist, but he began to, to criticize Stalin. And so inside of prison, he abandoned Marxism, and he became a Christian. We'll tell a little bit more of his story later, but this is what he wrote. He said, if only there were people, evil people somewhere, insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. By the but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That's what he found out in prison. And that seems to agree with what the old prophet Jeremiah said in his book, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, friend, no political revolution fixes this. The sickness of the human heart, AC3, the environment where the true corruption is, we all want to locate that somewhere out there. We want to locate it in Hollywood, you know, where the, where the scandal of sex abuse lives. We want to locate it in the White House. That's where the environment of corruption is. And if you believe Jeremiah, the true environment for corruption is in me, is in you. That's where the environment for true corruption lives. So Pete Townsend seemed to know this, and he bemoaned, that we keep on getting fooled again and again by promises that if we just got rid of the evil people out there, everything would be great. So that leaves us maybe a little bit hopeless. Like here we are with the deceitful human heart and we're just going to usher in a new boss. It'll be same as the old boss. What could change this state of affairs? Friends, a heart revolution could change this state of affairs. And Jesus claimed to be the bringer of heart revolution. 
He said with stirring words, one time uh, quoted by John, John chapter 7, Jesus stood up and cried out to the public. He said, anyone who is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Friends, this is a promise of a heart revolution, you understand? This is a heart revolution. And now I want to ask you a question. How did Alexander Solzhenitsyn experience heart revolution? Because it's very instructive to note the environment in which his heart revolution began. It began in a Russian gulag. That's where his heart revolution began. In other words, it began when the physical environment around him was never worse than in that moment. There was no equality. There was no justice for all. There was no prosperity. There was a gulag, there was uh, defamation of character, there was arrest and prison and torture, and there was, oh yeah, cancer. I didn't tell you that part, did I? So Alexander Solzhenitsyn, to add insult to injury, came down with cancer in the Russian gulag. He became a new man because of a heart revolution, precisely when his physical environment was the least just, the least equitable, and the least prosperous. That's amazing to me because there was a man we're going to learn about next who was given the exact opposite things. There is a man, a modern man, you've all heard of him, who was given fame and money and beautiful women and many children and large homes and expensive vacations and the adulation of millions of people. And yet none of those things could stop the lead singer of Lincoln Park from spiraling into depression. And it was out of that depression that he wrote this, the last song we're going to hear this morning, Heavy. I don't like my mind right now Stacking up problems that are so unnecessary wish that I could slow things down. I want to let go, but there's comfort in the panic. And I drive myself crazy, thinking everything's about me. Yeah, I drive myself crazy, cause I can't escape the gravity. I'm holding on. Why is everything so more than I can carry I keep dragging around what's bringing me down if I just let go I'll be set free holding on why is everything so heavy you say that I'm paranoid but I'm pretty sure the world is out to get me it's not like I make the choice to let my mind stay so messy. I know I'm not the center of the universe, but you keep spinning around me just the same. I know I'm not the center of the universe, but you keep spinning around me just the same. I'm holding on. Why is everything so heavy? Holding on to so much more than I just 
just the same I know I'm not the center of the universe But you keep spinning around me just the same chills listening to that. And for those of you who don't know, the postscript on this song is that Chester Charles Bennington, lead singer of Lincoln Park and the writer of those lyrics that you just heard, if I just let go, I'd be set free, did in fact let go. And he hung himself July 20th this summer. And you know what we want to know? We want to know how a guy of his wealth and fame and assets and gifts and talents could possibly carry such a heavy burden. And now I want to say something very controversial about this. Maybe ruffle some of your feathers and I'm going to get letters. Some will say, well, you know, Rick, that's just clinical depression. As if that just explains it all. Like that explains everything. As if Bennington was possessed by the chemistry in his brain. That's sort of a materialist version of the devil made me do it, isn't it? You know, for all the centuries that Christians would try to absolve themselves of responsibility for their own behavior, they'd say, well, I just, it's the devil, it took me over and I couldn't help it. This is the materialist version of that, right? My chemistry made me do it. My brain made me do it. My genetics made me do it. But we cling to that, really, because we want to believe that there must have been a flaw in the brain. There had to have been. There had to have been a, a, a screw loose somewhere. Why do we want to believe that? Because this guy had everything you're going after. He's got wealth and money. He's got a bunch of kids and beautiful homes. And he's got everything. That his, his external environment is like dialed in. He's got all the stuff that you think brings happiness. And when a guy gets there and is besieged by heaviness and depression, we go, well, there's something had to be wrong with him. Because it couldn't possibly be that the dream I'm chasing is empty. That, that couldn't possibly be any part of the story. So this is comforting to us. And so it's easier to wash our hands and say, nothing else anyone could do, just a problem in the brain. So sad. There's a British journalist who was diagnosed as bipolar and prescribed a uh, mixture of mood stabilizers and antipsychotic medication. And I... I Note that because of what he says, what the following, so he knows what he's talking about. He recently wrote, when I was diagnosed, I was told bipolar is a genetic illness with a biological cause, so I harbored the common misconception that genetic means inevitable and unchangeable. But after some research, I realized that's not really what genetic means. 
To say something is genetic in this context is to say that there is a genetic contribution to the way a person responds to their environment. At most, it suggests a predisposition to certain behaviors. There's no inevitability about it. And I just find that to be a stirringly honest assessment of his own mental illness. Our culture treats people with depression as if there's only something wrong with them. A biological imbalance best treated and only treated with medication. As if it's impossible to understand biology outside of environment. But friends, if we really understand the human machine, we got to put them two, we got to put the two together. We got to put your biology together in your environment. What if your biology is interacting all the time with your environment? And if that's true, then we've got to look at the frightening increase in suicide and depression in our culture. And friends, the numbers, go look at them. They're scary. It's a national health crisis. And if that's true, then then what are the factors involved? That's all biology? Are we becoming X-Men? We're all changing genetically that explains the increase in the numbers? Or, Or there's another explanatory vehicle. Or there's something else going on in the environment with which our biology, which is predisposed to all sorts of mental problems, is is interacting. There's something going on in the environment. And what would that be if we looked really honestly and said, what's changing in the environment? Our social economic, our social environment, our economic environment, our spiritual environment, our emotional environment. Well, we know that Society is going through convulsive social changes right now. Uh, Increasing alienation, stress from family breakdown, increased political polarization. Uh, Family breakdown is enormous. 65% of African-American children are growing up without both biological parents in the home. The number for white children is fast uh, trying to reach the same number. It's now in the 40% range. And we know the stress and trauma that that puts on a child. And you add the omniscient specter of pornography that is a billions and billions of dollar industry that has gripped millions and millions of men and the alienation from true intimacy that that creates and the enslavement to shame that that creates. Then you add what often is a byproduct of that addiction and that's sexual abuse. And sexual abuse of both genders is skyrocketing. You're all part of the Me Too campaign and now we're realizing, oh my gosh, That many people were sexually molested? Are you kidding me? The numbers are that high? And friends, we already know, based on good study, what early sexualization and violent sexualization does to a person. We know what it does. It creates increased chance of rebellion, hostility, aggression, hyperactivity, poor school performance, sexual identity, confusion, bitterness, and depression. So the author of the article says, let's not pretend all people with depression, like Chester, are merely suffering a biological deficiency. Let's not pretend that when we prescribe antidepressants to an ever-increasing percentage of the population, we should congratulate ourselves that we've somehow solved the problem. See, what happens when we turn from Chester Bennington's biology, and let's examine his environment, shall we? Because after he killed himself, some of the details of his life came to light. And so we know that little Chester Bennington was sexually abused from an older male friend when he was just seven years old. And he was afraid to ask for help because he didn't want people to think he was gay or lying. 
and the abuse continued until the age of 13. His parents divorced when he was 11 years old. The abuse of that situation at home affected him so much that he felt the urge, he says later, to kill other people and later to run away. By high school, Bennington started abusing alcohol, marijuana, opium, cocaine, meth, and LSD. He was physically bullied in high school. And when his body was found, an empty bottle of liquor was found beside his dead body. And you know, friends, my heart breaks for what he went through. I mean, my heart breaks for him. And we wonder why he was depressed. Why a cloud of heaviness followed him and it couldn't be shaken, not by money and not by even a family and not by, by adulation and fame and a purposeful career. I don't wonder as much when I see the environmental factors. And so for many people in this room, what are we going to do about it? A lot of us struggle with depression, sadness, alienation, loneliness. What are we going to do about it? Well, if it's true that we can't just say, well, my biology made me do it, that that maybe is akin to saying the devil made me do it. If our biology is connected, not irrelevant, but connected to our environment, then we've got to look at what we can do also to change our environment. And here's where the wisdom of God's Word and the gospel will come to bear. Number one, we should change our social environment by not isolating. I'm going to quote for you a verse that pastors like to throw out there to guilt you into attending church more often. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. But I want you to read this verse now in the context of increasing loneliness, isolation, and depression. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. The Bible assumes that there is encouragement in community. So you stay pressed into your community. Because there's some kind of safety here. There's some kind of protection here. Satan, the Bible says, is a predator and you are prey. And how do predators work with their prey? Predators like to cull the herd. They like to pull away the weak and the infirm and the young. Pull them away from the herd because in the herd there is strong defense. You just have to watch a group of muskox to protect themselves against a uh, the predator, the uh, uh, wolf uh, predators, and you see the, the awesome, beautiful protection of the herd. And instead, what we do is we isolate. And so the first response to people who are lonely or depressed is say, I'm tired of people. They drive me up a wall. And they're tired of me because I'm always a gloomy Gus all the time. So you just withdraw. Listen, you've got to fight that. And you've got to come to your Christian community wherever you find it. That person that you know you can hang on to and lean on and vent to and trust with your intimate secrets and pain. And, and not give up meeting with them regularly. And so experience the, the encouragement of the herd. That you'll be together with the community of Jesus people. Second, you can change your spiritual environment by prayer. And this is a promise. And you might, find, you might not know the, the availability of it until you try it. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 where Paul will say, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And what will come of that? Instead of the worry, the worry, the worry about everything and the mind going crazy, instead pray. Pray about everything. Turn anxiety into prayer requests. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done and then experience God's peace which exceeds anything you can understand. This will guard you. And again, you need to be guarded. 
there is a predator out there. Third, you change your mental environment by truth. And how would you do that? That you would begin to accept things that the gospel presents to you as true as if they were really true. And so I ask you this morning, friend, will you accept Romans chapter 8 verse 28 as if it were true? Not just a platitude, but as if it were true. And you say, well, what's Romans 8 28? Look at the verse. We know all things work together for the good of those who love Him, who love God, and are called according to His purpose. What if you accepted that that was true and not just a platitude? See, God is calling you to trust Him in a world of pain. He knows the triggers of loneliness. He knows what triggers depression in you. He knows what triggers sadness and alienation. And there are environmental triggers to all those things. But would you accept truth in the middle of all those things and then begin to apply the truth to those things? And the truth is that God works all things, including all those painful triggers, all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Would you choose to receive that as truth today? That that pain which grieves you and grieves the heart of your Father also could be used by your Father for you. I want to end with Alexander Solzhenitsyn's story. Because he was dying of cancer, I said, after nine years in a Russian gulag, and the doctor who worked on him was a Christian. And he talked to him often about how he found hope in Christ. And the hope that he found came from the most strange, ironic place. The doctor said to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, then a sort of bitter, backsliding Marxist. That's basically what he was. And he said to him, as he was working with him on cancer treatments, he said, what has turned my heart is to realize that everything I've been through, everything God has allowed for good purpose and has been justified. And there he was, just like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, unjustly condemned, unjustly thrown into prison, and he said, everything that's happened to me was for good purpose and justified. The next day, that doctor was found dead in his cell, eight blows to the head, and likely had something to do with his faith. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, he gave to me his parting gift, those words, which fell on my heart with a kind of heaviness that I could not shake. And I began to ask, well, wait a minute, if God had good purpose, then why did the innocent seem to suffer the most? And what about my torturers? Why does God not punish them? Why do they prosper? And he said, quote, the only solution to this would be that the meaning of earthly existence lies not as we have grown used to thinking and prospering, but rather in the development of the soul. And from that point of view, our torturers have been punished most horribly of all, for they are turning into swine. They are, de they are departing downward from humanity. And from that point of view, punishment is inflicted on those whose development offers, out, offers up the most hope. And so there in prison with cancer in his body and scars on his back, Alexander Solzhenitsyn came to understand why everything had happened to him. And he reviewed his life and he said, wait a minute, when I was young, I was intoxicated with youthful successes and I felt myself to be infallible and therefore I was cruel. And so when I had a surplus of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. And in my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good and I would supply you with systematic arguments why it was so. And it was only when I lay on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first faint stirrings of good.
And so gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart. You understand what he was saying? He was saying while he was riding high in youth and health and vigor, he had been a monster. And when he was laid low in pain was the first glimmers that he was turning into a saint. And so the words of Jesus came true in him. Jesus said, Matthew 16, he who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn found a hope we only wish that Chester Bennington had found before it was too late. But it's not too late for you. And it's not too late for me. We can see that the problems of this life, while yes, they have the potential, they could drag you down. Yes, they could drag you down into depression and despondency and maybe even into death. But what if those things could work together for good? And what if even those things could also be the wings that bear you up to God? And there, in casting yourself on Him, you find life. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for my friends here this morning, the ones whom I love, the ones who live in this world of pain and depressing amounts of alienation and loneliness. And I pray that we would find in your truth the hope for our empty hearts. Lord, I pray for heart revolutions to so stir in this place that we would look around at a world that seems to have gone to hell in a handbasket and be so much less stressed out about it because we trust in the one who holds history in his hands and can make all things work together for good. Yes, even this thing you're thinking of right now, Lord. Lord, the thing that my friends are thinking about, the... the the moment of greatest pain. Lord, even that thing you could use. And I pray that you would set us on confident trust that in so moving in these things that we would see your hand at work making us new from the inside out. Bring us this hope in Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.